Hey, this is Dave Pryor. You're listening to The Reluctant Agilist. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by my friend Devil Panchal, and we're going to talk all about culture. Everybody talks about how culture is the thing you have to change if you want Agile to work. And they say culture eats strategy for breakfast, and it's like this big, ominous boogeyman that nobody can move. And maybe it's big, and maybe it's ominous, and maybe it's eating things at the breakfast table, but maybe somebody else is there too. Maybe culture's not the only problem. Maybe it's not an excuse. So that's what we're going to dig into in this podcast. Hope you enjoy it. If you learn to work the old way, but the new way is what you need. My job's to make that switch from old to new. Something less for you than it did for me. Here I drunk in PM Radio. Whoa. Here I drunk in PM Radio. Whoa. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Today I am here with my friend Double Panchel. Thank you for being here, man. Thank you, Dave. We are recording this in December. It's the last podcast I'm going to record this year, but you're going to hear it in January. And we're going to give you a topic you can start the year off with. You can all make a New Year's resolution. And what are they going to stop blaming everything on? Culture. Culture, right. I thought you were going to say the pandemic. Yeah, we're going to talk all (laughs) about culture and why culture is not an excuse um, for anything. But before we do that, um, do you want to give them like a quick rundown of the work that you do and your background and your company? Yes. So uh, I'm founder of Evolve Agility and uh, where we work is in the space of agile coaching, agile transformation. And in that pursuit, uh, we do uh, trainings and work with leadership teams on how you're going to work, how, how you're going to transform your organization. All right. And we have done a lot of podcasts together also as part of the Agile Eastocrats, if anybody wants to look up that mess of noise that yes. we've made in the past. Um, okay. So people talk all the time about culture, culture, each strategy for breakfast, all the other things people say about it. Correct. Um, and what's your, what's your beef with culture? I, I don't have a particular beef with culture. I, prob- I probably have beef with the attitude that uh, everything can be blamed on culture. And uh, personal responsibility can be washed off by saying, oh, it's our culture. It's almost like shrugging your shoulders uh, because you can't do much about culture, which in some respects is true. You cannot directly change the culture of the organization. But also at the same time, when you look at the surveys that go out every year and uh, version one does the state of agile survey, uh, one of the top contributors to challenges with agile adoption or agile transformation is the culture of the organization. And I'm always surprised why do people feel that they can directly change the culture and as a result, get an agile organization. Well, okay. So can we unpack this one a little bit? Yes. I'm going to try to play the other side. So um, let's say I work at an organization, an older organization, traditional organization. I'm on a team. We want to be able to do scrum but there's no trust from management because they keep trying to tell us how to become faster or more efficient. They don't let us own things. We're still siloed into different teams. It's a fear-driven organization. There are a lot of cultural artifacts or habits that are really, really hard to break. And I can see where somebody would say, well, if you can't get to the point where you can embrace failure as a gift and learn to trust, then this stuff just isn't going to work. Right, and and I want to pick on the last statement that you made because I was with you up until then, uh, and then you asked for uh, the universal hippie factor. Not that many, <laughs> that many people in the agile community uh, 
either attribute to <laughs> being agile and, and maybe that's what I, I lost you, Dave, right? So let me summarize what I, what I heard so far. Uh, there, there is a traditional organization which is relying on managers to be very command and control and tell people exactly how to do. Employees in the organization are, are fearful of what will happen uh, if they do or don't behave the way the organizational culture is. And what you are asserting is, uh, unless we all start to love each other, it's not going to change. Yes, I think trust. Trust was my thing, but love would be nice too. Right, right. Yeah, and and I think this this is a this is a good point. You know, when we talk about trust, uh, I I had a recent conversation with 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 the with the client, and we we kind of agreed on one point that you cannot blanket trust everybody on everything. You know, my wife doesn't trust me uh, to do the dishes as well as she would trust herself. But she trusts me in other areas of, of, of our lives, you know. So it's hard to say that when we trust other people in our organization that we trust them for everything. I, you may not trust me to walk your dog, but you may trust me to do some kind of task for you on the team. Okay. And in that sense, uh, when we talk about trust in an organizational context, you want to ask, uh, what has the organization learned by trusting or mistrusting the people in, in, their, in their organizations? Can I interrupt you for one second on that one? Yes. Because you said something that I heard it in a way that I've not thought of it before. Okay. You talked about the organization trusting and the organization has learned to trust certain things. It's almost right. like this company has a personality. Yes, and a memory. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. I feel like we're heading in a good direction. Okay. So it's got this memory uh -huh. of, of when certain things happen, it, it's learned to respond a certain way. And we're talking about teaching it to respond in a different way. Correct. But we can't just say when I, you know, reach this, when I raise my hand to strike you, don't try to block the punch because it's already learned to do that. Right. See, a, a lot of these, uh, what you would call as underlying assumptions of how the organization has worked, get transferred from one, for lack of a better word, one cycle or one generation of employees to another generation of employees. To the point where if you are in an organization that is 50, 60, 100 years old, there are a lot of behaviors that you are accepting and performing in a new organization in, in this organization that you just come to take for granted okay you don't even know why these things exist or why they are there it's just how how work happens and this is often one of the descriptions that you will find one of the many descriptions of what culture is is how we get work done around here right and those 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 underlying assumptions are when they don't get challenged uh, or they don't get, uh, they don't, how would I put it? Uh, uh, things get challenged all the time, but if they seem to work for your company, then you would continue to do that. You would expect other people will also do that. Okay. So, and that's something that people have to be sort of taught to do. Mm, not not explicitly, but they learn through osmosis. In, in other words, there's a lot of, uh, learnings that happen by mimicking or copying other people in your organization. So let's say, uh, let, let's use an example because it'll be a little more concrete. Yeah. Okay. 
So let's look at like a company that has been there uh, for about 100 years or so. We'll call it a bank because many banks have been around for about 100 years. Yeah. And if you were a brand new employee who's never worked in a bank before and you showed up at a bank as your first day, uh, you will find a few things that are distinguishably different about a bank. Uh, they will all be dressed formally or semi-formally. In other words, you will not see flip-flops and shorts, um, which is something that you might expect at a gaming company, but not at a bank. You will also see uh, language and behavior that is being used in email and in interpersonal communication is formalized, uh, yeah. uh, talk loosely. Uh, so you're going to observe all of this, these little things that you observe your peers do. And now you're going to slowly adopt those practices because that's how you can get your work done in the organization. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, how did the bank come to, or the banking culture, so to speak, come to adopt all of these uh, mannerisms and formalities? One hypothesis is back in the day, 100, 200 years ago, people wanted to put their money in the mattress and the banks had a reason to convince people to put it with them. So they had to look professional and responsible and, 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 uh, and in a way are uh, trustworthy. So that's how they established trust with their customers. And now that practice has permeated end to end throughout the whole organization where they expect you to be formal, right? And less informal in other words. So is that, I guess maybe we've swung in the opposite direction now and in, in that people may, may dress more casually to come in and signal, I don't work at the bank. I'm not of that culture. Correct. Like if you, if you work, if you are not working at a bank, you're going to essentially copy what, and the scenario is you're joining a new company, you know? Yeah. You're going to try to fit in. I mean, that's a basic human need not to get alienated. And that's how I, I, I believe like you start to adopt some of the practices or assumptions and become part of that organizational culture. Okay. Right. So now the question becomes like, how, how, how do we approach uh, a change at the cultural level? And this is where I like how you opened it to say that you cannot change the culture directly. If I were to now go into a bank and say, everybody needs to wear flip-flops because we are cool, um, they will laugh me out of the institution, you know? Yeah. Because what we want is not a superficial change. Uh, what we want is a acceptance of different value systems, which is where Agile comes in. So how would you explain the difference between the value system and the culture? Or is the value system just a reflection of the culture? There, there, is, a, there is also a disconnect in the values that are espoused and values that are practiced. In other words, many organizations have aspirational value statements versus the things that actually are being valued. And you can see that hypocrisy sometimes, especially back in the day when you could go into a physical office, you would see <laughs> posters no, of, of our organizational values, transparency, and then you would go into a meeting and everyone's lying through their teeth about the status of the project. And you go like, okay, there is some kind of hypocrisy, you know, in what we aspire to be and where we are. So, so in that sense, I would take a much more practical viewpoint to say, what does the organization need in order to solve their internal problems of organizing okay. itself? 
yeah because they have to organize in some way shape or form and there are some approaches they take in order to solve those problems and then there are the external problems of surviving the environment that they are in so what are those environmental problems that they are trying to solve by that environmental i mean like what what is their strategy uh, who are their customers how do they make money is money the way they survive or do they survive on uh, goodwill i mean there's a lot of uh, things that the external environment presents as challenges to this group of people who have organized into a company and the way they solve these external problems of survival and the internal problems of organizing themselves they practice certain things that they value more than others so that's where you find this disconnect where organizations intuitively will know that we are not really proud of the culture that we have but it has gotten us to where we are at and they will cope with that disconnect by aspiring for values that don't exist it's almost like an advertisement you know no advertisement shows you how the world really is it's how everybody else wants it to be well, I think a, a maybe a really simple parallel to that would be an organization that decides it wants to switch to agile but is unwilling to let go of siloed you know siloed groups of people who are all working on seven different projects at once and you know quotas for stuff that has to be delivered being handed down like they say they want agile but they're unwilling to make any of the changes that are necessary to create conditions in which it could exist. Correct because the way they have solved this problem before has ensured that they are they are still around no and yeah. this is and this is where leadership and and uh, the involvement of structural changes becomes important because without changing the assumptions on how work gets accomplished right in other words instead of resources that get assigned to tasks you have a team that is pulling projects or pulling on value streams these are like fundamental assumptions of how an organization will structure itself and unless the that changes the culture will not change so i guess maybe another thing would be like if if you think about somebody um like mcgregor's theory x theory y thing where the people right. that are theory x believe i basically have to hit you with a stick to get you to move and theory y believes people will just do amazing things correct um, that but okay so I guess what I'm wondering is if I if I say that culture is not going to be my excuse and I go with that right would it be possible to instantiate agility within an organization that was still very theory x or does the adoption of those practices by nature require a cultural adoption of an agile mindset at least in order for it to survive Right, Agile and Theory Agile. X don't work well together at all. Okay. Right, because Theory X presupposes two fundamental things. One, the person who does the work is different from the person who can think about the work that needs to happen. And therefore, we encounter the manager and worker divide, where the manager is responsible to motivate Ooh. the worker. Look at you breaking McGregor in half. This is awesome. <laughs> but isn't that obvious like we it wasn't obvious to me till you said it but yeah <laughs> okay so so now you have the manager who's using the carrot and stick policy you not know, to motivate the worker and 
in, in theory, why, uh, which is again an ideal, you know, uh, ideal state. It, I don't know if that will actually exist or not, but in theory, why the fundamental assumption is that the individual does both the thinking and the doing. And acts, and acts to the benefit of everyone. Right, and, and acts to the benefit of whatever uh, their information purview is. Yeah. So, for example, I, I was actually thinking of writing an article on different modes of pair, pair programming or pairing, right? Not necessarily programming sense, okay. but, but there are like different models, yeah? So yeah. there's one model of pairing, and you can imagine this is a manager worker or two workers or two managers. Yeah, but there is some hierarchical difference uh, in this in this thing. So you will see one kind of peer-to-peer -peer pairing, like two peers working together on the same problem. We see that in software uh, pair programming. Then there is another model of uh, hierarchical pairing where you can see two examples. One is the pilot-copilot, where the pilot is uh, structurally superior to the copilot, and then the surgeon and the nurse which in a operating room, the surgeon will have more authority, more decision-making, uh, you know, uh, ability than the nurse. So far with me? I am. I'm, I'm sort of wanting to fight you on both the co-pilot and the nurse thing. I was going to say they have different responsibilities, but right, I'm right. curious. I'm like, I'd be really curious to hear how a nurse would respond to that. Correct. Or a co-pilot. Right, right. And it, so that that's where probably I'm going, right? You know? Yeah. So if you look at uh, the lean culture, which is very theory Y or not, it's not like a perfect theory Y, but it does take the stance that the sort of a judgy theory Y. Yeah, in the sense like it, it believes that the it believes that the worker wants to do a good job, right? That's a fundamental assumption in theory Y that the worker really wants to do a good job, yeah. and they know the best because they are closest to the work being done. Right. So, so what you will find in in um, in in some companies, they would do this manager, sorry, this uh, surgeon and nurse, where the manager or the supervisor is the nurse and the worker doing the work on a workstation is the surgeon. So the role of the manager or the nurse role is to support the surgeon in doing the best work that they can. So if they ask for a tool, if they say something needs to be addressed, they're going to trust that person's judgment rather than say, I know better because I've been doing this for a very long time. This is one kind of pairing, you know, so you've essentially flipped the organizational culture by using a analogy from the real world where you have purposefully flipped the roles of the worker and the manager. Yeah. Okay. Right? And, and this in an organization uh, can be very powerful if you can make that flip. You, you're not fundamentally challenging the hierarchy. You're not asking for the whole organization to become a flat organization. You're essentially saying, here's how we're going to work uh, together differently. I'll, I'll pause because you wanted to uh, have, or you had a different viewpoint on, on the pairing analogy. So I wanted to. Well, I'm just thinking of, of of the doctor nurse relationship, like I think that the nurse has awareness of and pays attention to a lot of things that the doctor doesn't, including the doctor themselves. Or you could think about if you had a really good caddy with a golfer, right? A really good caddy is not just carrying the bags and handing the clubs that are asked for, but they're probably making suggestions. They're helping that, that 
golfer right. to be better than they would be without the caddy. And I guess in any pairing relationship, um, you know, I get that's sort of kind of the thing that I'm I would love to be able to see. And maybe that's that whole servant leadership scrum master thing. Um, it's not just the people on the stage; it's the people that get them on the stage. It's the guitar technician as well as the guitar player. Um, right. But it doesn't make one role. I, I'm I'm uncomfortable with saying one role is more valuable than another. Right. More no, we're not saying no. We're not saying one role is more valuable, but we are using the analogy of the surgeon and the nurse and flipping it around to flip the narrative in some organizations okay. where managers are viewed to be the smarter one, right? So it's that transition moving towards from X to Y to say your role as a manager is to actually support your workers yes. and, and, and trust that they want to do a good job. Now you will find like some, some individuals who, who probably have been conditioned to the extent where they don't really care and maybe they are not a good fit in an agile organization, you know? Because the agile, so the agile manifesto and what we call agile wants to start with the assumption that the worker is intrinsically motivated to do the best work that they can. Okay. And and in some organizations, uh, people have they they've beaten out <laughs> any initiative out of yeah. an right. We taught them not to be intrinsically motivated, except for on the weekends. We're not Correct. paying them to be motivated. We're paying them to work. God damn it! Right, and and and, and these behaviors and these kind of environments can be very toxic. And also, people people kind of say, "Okay, this is this is what I do. I show up from nine to five. So when you come in with the breath of fresh air called agile and transforming into taking charge of your own destiny." It's not always that uh, people will latch onto it at the first instance. They actually have to experience some meaningful change and meaningful change in behavior from people around them. Because I still, I will still hold on to my first comment that people mostly mimic other people. So if they see other people behaving in agile ways, they will do so too. So what is it that is that helps at least a critical mass of people to start acting and behaving differently is is important to start changing well, the culture, right? I think it's important and I think there's an assumption that offering this up will cause that intrinsic motivation like if we tell you you get to decide all these things and you get to be in charge of all these things then you're going to want to do them and some people not really some yeah. people kind of want to show up and be told just put your finger in here and turn it this way and then the thing will happen and they're good with that other people they want to be part of designing solutions as well as building them right and and it really depends on individual experiences, no, uh, around what has happened when they took charge of something, but they were left hanging without any support. So, mm -hmm. so we so we don't know what life experiences people have had, and that's where like the structure of the organization becomes extremely important. Uh, attempting to directly claim that we are going to do a culture change is not going to work because it essentially ignores all the structures that enforce existing behaviors and doesn't do much to change the experience of the employee. Um, so people get this heart and sure, you're going to change culture, you know? Okay. So if we redesign the inside of the building, right. The people inside it will behave differently. Yes. 
Okay. Yes. So a good example of this might be going from a place where you had cube farms and you know offices around the perimeter with windows for the more senior people to an open floor plan where no one has an assigned seat. Correct. And, and I will not claim that the open floor plan is universally better, but will definitely influence the behavior and interactions of the people. In other words, like when the Apple campus was built like a donut, no, it's like built like a circle. Yeah. The intent for the circle was primarily because people will have to cross through a lot of different functional groups. And then there's a central place where they will mingle with each other across departments. So there will be more uh, chances of um, new ideas coming through these interactions. Okay. In contrast, if you go to the Washington DC airport, it is a maze. I mean, it must be designed by a bureaucrat because it is 90 degree turns and there's no way you can look past the first, uh, you know, within 20 yards, like you lose visibility because all you see is walls. Because my assumption is that is designed for, <laughs> for secrecy. <laughs> it okay. cannot be designed for the airport traveler, you know. I mean, it, it, all of these different places, you know, they have their own architectural design intent and you have to go back into the mind of the person who, conceived of this to know what assumptions and what was the goal that they were trying to achieve. Okay. So I want to try to argue this point for a second. Um, and I'm still trying to formulate my response. So I hope it's going to come out in a sensical way. I can see where somebody could argue that if we organize the environment with the cube farms and the offices, and we're very deliberate in creating an organizational structure with hierarchy, and very clearly defined roles. Everybody knows what their job is. They know to stay in their lane and do their thing. Right. And then within that constraint, they have more freedom to come up with the best solutions for the tiny little problems we're going to, you know, spoon onto their plate. Mm -hmm. The other way, like if I had to walk into an office space with an open floor plan and no assigned seating, every single moment would be anxiety producing for me. Because I am a person who needs to have a regular space to be in. And from a cognitive load standpoint, where right. am I going to sit? How am I going to set up? Am I going to get a good you know, electrical connection that I can reach with my plug? Like all the other things, plus all that spontaneous interaction and new ideas, that all carries a cognitive load, which while valuable, right. does take away my ability to do other stuff with that capacity. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I'm with you on both fronts. Okay. I thought we were going to be able to have an argument there. I guess I'm going to have to look for a different one. Um, okay. So if I change the structure, though, we can't guarantee that that's going to provide or spontaneously turn into agility. But can, exactly. we, can we agree that if I don't take steps to move away from this fear-driven command and control working environment that I have created, right. then agility is not going to be possible. Right. And, and it, 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 it goes down to the degree of where you want to influence, you know, how much you want to, uh, to, to control the individual. Yeah. Where Agile will step in is to say that you cannot control at the individual level. You let the individuals organize into self-managing teams where the team members manage each other. 
and I'm specifically talking about Scrum here. Uh, it need not be that way. And then you give them some kind of a goal or a direction and trust that the teams are going to produce something of value and you can inspect it every two months, at least every two months. This gives you just enough lightweight control to look at how the changes in the environment are actually building an environment or, or building conditions for empower people to do good work. If they are not, then you will change your environment again slightly and then see if that is helping. I mean, that would be the iterative approach towards uh, guiding the organization towards an agile culture. Yeah. Well, okay. I want to test some of that a little bit. And because mm -hmm. the way you just said it got me thinking about something. Okay. And I'm going back to that thing about empowering people. There was this one specific person I'm thinking of, middle man, middle level manager. Right. Always walking around talking about how the people upstairs didn't know what they were doing and if they were in charge, blah, 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 blah. Correct. That guy got promoted mm -hmm. for a short period of time. He was completely unable to make any decisions about changing anything as soon as he had the authority to change it. Right. Um, trying to change a workplace culture structurally or through other means, I don't think that's going to, I'm wondering whether that would even work if the people that were in that space were not open to the possibility of change. Cause some people they aren't, or they think they have and they haven't like right. that. That's another aspect of this that we don't really hit on. If we're saying, Oh, it's the culture's fault is that, there's an internal individual culture that each of us has to transform ourselves before we can transform the organization. Yes and no. Uh, we, we may not have to ask everybody to find an enlightenment, you know, before we change the company into a natural organization, because it really is, it's not like, it's not a uh, aggregate aggregation. Um, in, in other words, uh, when five people are agile, therefore the five people collectively will be agile. In fact, I can guarantee that you get five people who claim to be agile, they will never be able to deliver an agile project on their own because <laughs> they are going to have their own version. That's why they need a manager. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> but, but you've experienced that, Dave, right? I mean, we, we have experienced that in some of the groups that we worked with. And you, yeah. can, you can list all the different ways it will not work. So the, the core assumption that for five people who are of some mindset, say agile mindset, collectively they will exhibit the agile mindset together is, is not true, not always true at least. So you can have agile teams where you have people who don't necessarily sub subscribe to the whole, whole approach of, of agile and, and et cetera, et cetera. What they would care for is what kind of experience they want to have in working with their peers in doing the work that they like to do. And if that experience is, is what they want and, it and they arrive to that experience through Agile values and principles, then they would like Agile. But if they don't, then they're going to hate it. In other words, a lot of people who are in the dark scrum, right? Uh, Ron Jeffrey's article around yeah. how scrum is being abused. I would expect them not to like scrum at all because their experience has been really bad with it, right? So. In fact, they, you would find them to be strong advocates of why you should not do agile uh, uh, because their experience has been so negative that they don't know what good looks like. So they don't have any way of saying, this is what we want to do. 
and this is where I, I kind of feel like this desire to, to do agile or, or be agile, all of that is secondary. You know, what is what should be primary is how do you want to show up to work with your colleagues? Uh, what is it that you want to achieve together? And then look at the agile values and principles as, as, as guides, as um, the collective wisdom of people who work in the software industry. And then use them, use that to see if it actually improves the experience of yourself and, and your team members in, 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 in having a positive work experience, you know? So what you just said, I think, is really powerful in that people could make a choice to show up a certain way, behave a certain way, engage with certain people that support those kinds of behaviors, and to not engage with the ones that don't. Right. Which I think is is great. And if you're able to do that, then you're really, really fortunate. But in terms of the hierarchy of need, there's a lot of people who probably either do not have that luxury or do not perceive themselves as having that luxury. So they look to others to provide it for them or they blame not having it on others. I mean, that getting people to climb up Christopher Avery's, you know, steps of responsibility to a point where they have fully engaged in attracting the things that they, you know, are, are are kind of calling to themselves. Um, That one, it's exhausting. I (laughs) think, Somebody who tries to do it. It takes a lot of energy. But two, you have to really be in the right kind of situation. Like, I don't feel like that's something everybody can do. Right. And and we don't want to, I, at least I don't think it is desirable to put up uh, like a, you know, a, a scheme to say you must cross these seven levels before you are, you are somebody, you know. Um, I, I genuinely feel like people are extremely resourceful and they know how to solve their problems and they do that in the ways that they have experienced before and what they know has worked before. So okay. the role of the organization is now to to have people experience different ways of working. Okay. And, and I feel like the agile ways of working are, are much more sustainable, more enjoyable and most successful not not successful but good work and good in the sense that people want to stay there and want to work there longer um, for for more years those kind of working environments naturally converge to agile ways of working they naturally converge to uh, people having interactions Uh, there is no bureaucracy you don't have to sign stuff in triplicate but there is some respect to process and procedure because it helps them so things naturally converge to that state I, i feel yeah. I mean, hopefully in a lot of places. Well, okay. So if we can't blame culture, right? who are we going to blame? We got to be, a, we, I mean, <laughs> we got to blame somebody. We can't be responsible for everything. There's some people that are just gonna, not going to be able to say this is on me. Because th- right. just as a parallel, that would be like saying we have global warming. That's my fault. Correct. I am the one that caused global warming. Well, no, but each individual, if they took steps to try to change that, we might be able to impact a change. But people are going to have to be willing to go through that struggle at a, at a personal level. Right? Yes. I mean, that is one way of solving the problem, no? Well, what would another way be? 
so if, if I were to, uh, I will not get into global warming because I'm I'm also not so sure about it. But ah, it, there we go. We can have a fight about that. Save that one for a bar. No, I'm not going to fight about it. But what, what I'm trying to say <laughs> is the whole approach that everybody uh, go back into the caves, uh, which is actually what we have done. You know, uh, we've essentially done that with the Corona pandemic. Um, we've significantly reduced uh, the output of carbon, right, so to speak. And um, I'm curious about what papers and research and study and everything comes out in a few more years, because if the problem can be solved by the entire world taking a one month no travel ban, like every year, and that will solve the global warming problem, but you don't have to lower your standard of living, hey, I'll sign up for that any day. Well, what about the simple loss of population? I mean, that's got to have an effect on it somehow. You would oh, think. But, sorry, which loss of population? So all the people that have died. But there are like, sorry, you mean because of Corona? Yeah, there's less oh. people producing environmentally challenging things. No, no, I would not look at it that way, Dave. Right? Because let's say there was like a, a magical um, proclamation from the sky, like no one will travel for one month. Yeah. Right. That's, that was just a proclamation. No corona, nothing. And we all stopped for a month. And uh, airplanes did not go. No one polluted everything because you all just moved around your neighborhood and right. got to meet your neighbors instead of traveling 100 miles to somebody else. Um, right? And all of that got because the gas hit. You know what happened? Like we stopped traveling, no? For some reason. Yeah. yeah? And you if, can see the sky in, in what is it? Right. What part of China the air was suddenly clear? Or you can see the. Right the rivers and stuff like that in different cities. Yeah. Right, right. So so let's say um, after some some years, we actually find out like this was extremely good for the environment, right? Right. That as a, um, you know how how people fast, not for losing weight, but like fasting is good for, yeah. for you. Yeah. So what if the whole uh, industrialized economy fasted for two weeks or a month every year? And that's all it takes to not face the to move the needle, yeah, right. Because uh, Earth, as a natural system, knows how to recover if we take a fast or or we fast from all the industrial activity that we right. do. If that solved the problem, then I don't have to ask everybody to, you know, become an ascetic and move into a cave full time. You see, so that's yeah. why I, that's why I was saying like there may be other ways of solving the problem that we don't. Got it. Got it. Yeah, no. Okay. And and the same thing kind of goes for um, like the whole agile agile stuff. You know, we have a lot of people, and I've met like engineers and and folks who are really passionate about solving a technology problem, and they don't mind showing up to a fifteen minute meeting and sharing what they're worked at. They don't mind being part of a sprint planning, but it all becomes like a, a chore and a bore when it does not help them to do what they wanted to do, which is build great products, right? So at this point, like I would look for like how, how what are the experiences that these people are having in working with their peers and with the agile uh, the agile advocates because the way okay. they show up in front of these engineers uh, matters because if you show up as like oh you must all drink this Kool Aid and believe agile will solve your problems then a lot of engineers will say look I just want to do cool engineering stuff. They're not saying I don't want to do agile, but their preference is more to do programming and then solve engineering problems. You know, 
Yeah, it's more of a set of tools for them than some something they want to be bringing into life. Right. In other words, they don't want to get a PhD in Agile. You know, all they want to do is do their engineering stuff. And uh, if they call a story a feature, so be it. But if I, as a coach or an individual, sit down uh, with them and hold a meeting for two hours so they pro properly understand the origins of the word story and whatnot, they're going to roll their eyes at me. Yeah. So I guess like we've kind of deviated a little, like opened a lot of other doors, like global warming and, and, and everything else. Uh, and, and I guess this is where like the culture of the organization, maybe I can weave it back, you know, is you have to work with where the organizational culture is currently and ask and don't try to attempt it, attempt a wholesale change. Uh, in other words, like you, the culture of your organization starts from its DNA and you can't really change that DNA unless something drastic happens. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Is you, you can shape the culture, you can, you can shift it, but if you want to create a completely different culture, you kind of have to start from scratch. Wow. Well, then all those companies, should they just not even bother? No bother for what? Bother doing what? Well, they're not going to be. They're not going to be able to change themselves. Oh, they will change themselves. They are already. They are already changing. What they cannot change is to say, "Oh, look, we need to be like those cool kids, and therefore we are going to go become that kind of a company." Like we're all going to take on Spotify. We're all going to. Everybody's going to adopt the Spotify model. Yeah, you can't. You just can't. It, it, it's not in your DNA. You have to work with where you are at and then shape that to find your own uh, cool factor that you can then publish and call it the Bankify. I don't know. Like, you can't copy somebody else's uh, model. Okay. So I agree with you, and, I, and there's another part of me that wants to challenge it because I think that you can't, you can't copy someone else's model and get the same results because you're a different place. But that model, the copying of the model, mm -hmm. might help you develop skills you need to take it to the next step. In the same way that, I don't know, learning right. a bunch of Eric Clapton guitar solos isn't going to make me play like Eric Clapton, but it will give me some skills I can use to be my own guitar soloist. Yes. Okay. I, I can understand that at a skill acquisition level. Yes. Right? Yes. I can, I, can, I can completely understand. This is where I'll say people mimic because it's a very easy way of acquiring skills. Like if I were to join a company, uh, I would look for the behaviors that are most commonly demonstrated and start copying them because that way I can fit into the company really, really well or easily or faster, you know? So okay. I'm building the skill to blend in with the people or, or a tribe. So then my, my, what I say, what I offer is, is, is looked at and appreciated and, and accepted. Yeah. So all yes. of those skill stuff is, is good. And this adoption of the Spotify model, I suspect a lot of it is a desire by the so-called adopters in the in the other companies as a way to get accepted within the larger agile community. In other words, 
you if you were at an agile conference and you didn't you just found out agile yesterday what's the one thing you can say to find a conversation going you could say the word spotify model and then you have five friends who will tell you you're wrong and five friends will really- <laughs> It's so simple, right? So I'm, I'm going to use these uh, language and vocabulary of a, of, a, of a movement to be accepted within that tribe. So okay. I, I feel all of this adoption of these different things is essentially a desire to get adopted within the Agile community, right? Whatever that larger tribe is. Desire by whom? Desire by the individual to promote this internally. Okay. Right. I mean, I'm, and I'm not talking about the <coughs> big consulting firms you know, uh, that that probably use it as a quick fix and, and, and a misguided approach to just sell middle management on something that even they don't understand. Like we know a lot of big consulting firms that will say, we will do Spotify on you and nothing happens after a 200 right. PowerPoint deck. So... Some of it is a desire to get accepted within the larger Agile community. Uh, the actual change that you will see in organizations is, uh, I'll reiterate, like will happen when you start to first value the culture and where your organization has come from. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Uh, so if I'm a company that has been like a, a an old guard, no, and I think we've had this conversation once before. Um, so I'm going to pick on another holy grail in the agile community. Maybe is there's a lot of uh, conversation around the shareholder value is really really bad, and you should always optimize for the customer. And if you look in the world of the customer, you hear two phrases that are complete opposite of each other. The customer is always right, and the customer does not know what they need. So you hear all of these different phrases and people use it for their advantage, like whatever floats my boat right now, that's the phrase I'm going to use. So one of the phrases is that the stakeholder value, shareholder value is actually not a good idea because agile is changing and becoming customer focused. But if you go to some of the larger organizations, you know, that are like, they provide dividends and a lot of uh, people retire on the promise of those dividends. So these companies are essentially geared towards uh, delivering on shareholder value. And you go into these companies and you say, you're agile, you're going to focus on the customer and shareholder value creation is bad. Uh, You're going to encounter instant resistance. Whether that resistance is explicit or implicit is a separate matter. In other words, the explicit resistance will be that you would say, okay, you don't understand how our world works, so we'll find someone else who helps us maximize shareholder value. Or it will be implicit where everyone will agree with you because you are talking something that helps them to become a more, you know, uh, we love everybody type culture. Right. They'll have financial results that we need to meet. So if an organization actually acknowledged their role in the larger society as a whole to say like we help people retire you know and we help them do that by being predictable and delivering on our financial performances now how do we be agile in the pursuit of that goal Uh, it would be a whole another conversation then to walk in with the with with the the sword that shareholder value is, is universally bad right it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive though does it no, it doesn't. It doesn't. I'm just using that as an example, Dave, okay. to, to say like 
when we talk about uh, organizations, you know, there could be like two different things that they ascribe to one being agile and other not being agile. Yeah. And, and then as a proxy, they wage a battle against it. Okay. Which, okay. Which, which ignores the history of that company, you know? Um, so if you are a company that is formed to provide shareholder value, uh, by all means, continue to do that and be agile. Okay. So if we're saying that culture is not the thing to blame for everything or not having an agile culture, you can't blame that for everything. Right. And we don't have a blame replacement because we'd like the blame to go away. Right. It, it, okay. If it helps you to blame something and... No, no, no. I, I, I was just I was just checking in with you on that. Right, right. See, a little bit of blame is good. No, it's healthy. You just blame something that is outside your control, let go and don't take it personally. And then you move on and figure out how you're actually going to solve the problem. So in that lighthearted spirit, sure, blame something. But if you make it your uh, your objective and say, you know, I've been victimized by the culture of my organization and hold on to that narrative, then it's just going to be very hard for you as well. Like you will it's a demotivating game like spiral down into a space where you feel less and less in control of what you can do so that's right. why i say don't blame stuff outside your control because it isn't okay there's a part of me that that wants to say like yes there's plenty of places where they don't have the i don't know agency authority whatever term you want to use to create the kind of change necessary to see this shift Right, right. I want to say yes, but I also want to say, yeah, do it anyway. Yeah, it's not so much do it anyway. Uh, I, I would... Find a way. No, I mean, I, I would use the... And I think I'm quoting Kent Beck, and I could be wrong, but I'll, I'll say Kent Beck said it because it definitely isn't me. Um, <laughs> I really doubt he listens to this podcast. Right. So go ahead. <laughs> but, but what, he said, what he said was change the organization or change the organization. Yes. Right? So... There's only recognize that there is no like any attempt to say I will go and change this emergent property uh, that is created over time, multiple years, hundreds of years in some cases, tens of years at least. I will change all of that all by myself because I am a culture change agent. Is just taking giving yourself a lot more credit than, than you deserve. You know, it's very hard. Okay. To change the org culture unless like you are the CEO of the company and even then it's not an easy job like it's probably one of the most difficult journeys you can get onto so if we're not going to blame culture right and I don't want to find a replacement to blame but people do need to have something to kind of anchor in when they're like okay we've got a bunch of stuff we could fix Correct. I'm going to I'm going to make camp here and start working from this point out. Right. Um where does that fight begin? Oh it it begins with your peers with your teammates. Okay. You see the the power of success is so underestimated. In other words like if you and one more person in your organization were successful working in some way like let it be agile or some other way. Right people will start smelling your success and they will start mimicking you. See, this is how Agile got to where it is in the first place. Yeah. Like a lot of Agile teams were stealth Agile teams. Like back, and you'll remember this, right? Back in 2004, 2005, like that window. 
I want to say, I think I was involved in more stealth waterfall teams. They they said they were agile, but they were secretly turning it into waterfall. Okay. I had the, <laughs> I had the experience where like we would be doing agile projects and uh, let, 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 but let you wouldn't talk. tell anybody. Yeah. We would not tell anybody. Yeah. Even, even our client sponsor would say like, if you tell people you're doing agile, they're going to yeah. find ways to kill it. So they will hide us in the basement and we'll do projects there. Over time, people started realizing, oh, this actually delivers stuff. So what are you doing? Can you give me that secret sauce? So in other words, like, see, people want to succeed. They don't want to be agile. I mean, sure, agile is one way towards success. But I bet like anyone who says that if they win a lottery, they would not show up to do agile the next day at the company. You know, they'll probably chill out at a beach. So people people want to be successful they they look at what is successful and they want to try it and i think at a local level you just want to be successful with your peers and your team first before you go in to say i'm going to change the whole company and only then i will change into being an agile place okay so i did an interview with jim benson recently Mm -hmm. and we were talking about systems thinking and how if the organization was truly able to adopt lean and, and systems thinking, then every single person on the team who's making decisions would be making decisions with the greater good in mind. In, in similar, I guess the easiest example I have is there's this story about the janitor at NASA who asked why he was sweeping the floor, what he was doing when he was sweeping the floor. He said he was helping to put a man on the moon. Correct. Um, and and his his view of his role was I'm part of a larger thing than myself right. and make decisions with that in mind. To say we have this team focused mindset might be a good starting place. But this is and this is just give me a second and see if I want to see if this ties together right. for you the way it is in my brain. It's good to say at a team level we should optimize for the team. We should be able right. to do that. We still want all those people on the team to be thinking on behalf of the organization, which is a massive change because at the team level, they might just be thinking about survival. I'm also thinking about it on a personal level. And I keep coming back to this thing where more and more, I feel like transformation begins at an individual level. And the first culture you have to change is your own culture. I have to find a way to stop being theory x or at least to turn on some kind of filter right um to give myself a moment to pause and think okay that's the way i think because that's the way i've thought it's my karma but if i want to change it's going to take a more mindful conscious effort to say okay that's the thought that popped into my head what's the next thought that i can use to become something different than i have been in the past and that's the same thing you're going to have to do at the team level and the same thing the company's going to have to do as well at the organizational level. Yeah. So, Dave, I, I would not flog myself 10 times every day to become a better person, you know? No, no. It's similar to the way that when I moved out of traditional project management, like it took right. a while. My filters have gotten quicker. I still think resource before I say person. Right, right. But now I can often catch myself. Right, right. So this, see, all of that is great, no? I mean, that is your own personal, uh, personal journey that you find valuable and that you want to attain, whether you were working uh, at a job or not. Right. You see, like you would not walk into uh, Home Depot and say, "Where is your uh, advisor resource?" You, you probably say, "Where is that human being that can help me find uh, a leveler?" 
So, so that is going to translate in the whole, in every aspect of your life. And that is your personal journey, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And in, in that vein, like um, everybody has their own personal journey. And, and for, for some of us, uh, it's a little shallow. Hey, I just want to not think about too much and watch Netflix for a while, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and you can't like say, okay, one is right and the other is wrong. Uh, but where you can ask yourself is, are these individual journeys that people are taking? And now we are in a very globalized setting. No, I mean, I come from India. Uh, my thinking patterns and the way I grew up is totally different than how, how you grew up and your thinking patterns. Yep. And, and we're not going to say, okay, everybody must think this way, right? Uh, you'll still believe in what you believe and I'll believe in what I do. But where it matters is, uh, are we able to collaborate and deliver uh, something useful to the society? And if we can do that, then we can hold on to our beliefs and that's okay. And even that, though, I think is to be able to meet someone with a different, maybe even a different value system than you and say, we have different cultures. We're going to adopt a culture that we share together, that we maybe plan out together. We're going to work together to solve a problem together. I mean, that's that's a big change for a lot of people to be open to other points of view. I mean, simply look at the United States in the last you know year with the election, right? People and the, the election before this one, people are polarized and they're not always open to other points of view. And that that goes to all sides. Right, but then that also relates to open to other points of view in what realm? In other words, like you and I will have a different preference for the kind of coffee we like, uh, but that doesn't stop us from doing this podcast. No, but we also know that I'm going to be right and you're going to be wrong. And then that's, it makes yeah, it and, easy. Uh, and that's okay. I can see on that just because uh, it's not that important. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, 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 so, Dave, I, I mean, I, I would not worry too much about it. You know, I, I would also say that the story that you shared about the, the person uh, who was a janitor at NASA saying, I'm helping to put a man on the moon, tells yeah. you about the beautiful character of the person and not so much about the institution and how it made every individual feel that they are connected to the larger vision. Uh, so you, okay. So you're going to put that to the personal level, not to NASA. That's interesting. Or maybe not no. to the country at that time. Right. Yeah. I mean, not to see, there are movements where people feel connected by a shared, shared vision and shared goal. And they all, demonstrate that connection in different ways yeah i would ask you a, a reverse question to that if you were to and it's a hypothetical but so we don't know if it is true or not if we were to go to uh the chief engineer at nasa and tell him that for the next two months you should be cleaning toilets, and that will help us put a man on the moon will that person do it that would be a story where i would believe in the power of the institution and the vision and the mission but here uh, to me, it speaks a lot more to that individual rather than, uh, you know, r rather than the institution per se or what the country was going through. Okay. I also want to challenge that I don't, rarely people wake up in the morning, get a cup of coffee and say, here's how I'm going to screw my company today. Like no one wants to, <laughs> no one goes out of their way to, to be, uh, you know, unproductive or, or, or counterproductive. Yeah. 
And so people all, they want to do what is, what is for the greater good. And the question then becomes is, uh, do we know what that greater good is and how do we connect our actions towards that larger greater good? And that's where the culture and, and the overall vision of the company and the influences of our peers start to take place. You know, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's just so much there. So, okay. So let's, since we've been debating this for a while now, right? how would we, how would we wrap this up? Like if we're saying it's not culture, what, what is the thought that you would like to be in the heads of people who have been just giving it all up to the cultural issue? I, I will say first, uh, your company has survived and because it has survived, it has done something good up until now. Um, good to survive yeah so if you are like a mafia organization i will not say you have done something good societally done something to survive so uh, value that like find out about the history of your company yeah what were some of the key points where that survival was threatened what did they do to survive because that is part of your dna and if you try to fight against that dna it is going to be hard yeah because the, the collective shared memory of this organization as an organism uh, will do whatever it can right. to, to resist your attempts at it. So better to work with those, with those forces than to work against them. And I generally believe like most organizations have done well and they've added net value to the society. So, so don't like berate your organization and use culture as a way to say, we need to change the culture wholesale because otherwise it's an evil organization because only agile organizations are good. And there may be something more powerful in these organizations that agile has not yet discovered yet. Yeah. I agree with what you said. I, I guess I want to add that um, not having the ideal culture is not an excuse for not trying. Correct. Um, maybe you can't change the entire culture, but maybe you can find one single thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. And if everybody finds one single thing, all of those single things have a big ripple effect and can begin to create change. Yes. But the most important thing is you're essentially showing a path for others to follow. And it doesn't have to be like a full end-to-end journey, but just enough to yeah. give a smell of success to your peers and your teammates. Or even possibility. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. all for hope. I don't need success as much as I need hope. Yes. Cool. This was cool. This was a fun conversation. This was also our second iteration of this conversation. Yes. We have hope. Yes. This was more sensible than the first one. Um, okay. If people want to find out about the leadership classes that you're doing or any of the other stuff you have going on, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can go to evolveagility.com and uh, uh, the Certified Agile Leadership course is coming up in January, February, March. Uh, we go a lot more deeper into the other aspects, you know, beyond just the culture and agile transformation and leading organizations. Okay. And if they want to get you personally, same thing, or do you want to give it to LinkedIn, Twitter? Where do you want them to go? Uh, LinkedIn is fine. Uh, email okay. is fine. My uh, email is also on the website. So I think the website would be a good anchor to find everything else. Cool. All right, man. Thank you. Wish everyone a happy new year. Yes, everybody. A very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a very Happy New Year. All right. Thanks for doing this, man. This was cool. This was a nice way to end the podcasting for the year. Thank you, Dave. (laughs)